0: you'll turn with me in your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We're reading the story, really probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. While you're turning there, I just want to just make sure it doesn't escape your notice that did you see how every aspect of this service, I, I don't know, we, we go through the motions so often that we sometimes miss this. But God's word is filled in our service, that we start off with God calling us to worship. We hear God's word read, even in prayer, uh, Ben's prayer, we prayed God's word back to him, because we are like these sheep, that we need the instruction and the direction and the guidance of God's word, and also from the incarnate word to lead us and to point us, even in how to worship him. It's just such an amazing privilege that we have to do that and to worship him in accordance with his word. If you will, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he, Jesus, said to them, Come away by yourselves, To a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went to shore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And he said to them, or th- rather they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii? That's about eight months salary, by the way. 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go. Go and see and they went and when they found out they said five and two fish and he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves And gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, it's your word by your Holy Spirit, which feeds our souls. And it's able to feed our souls because the Lord Jesus Christ has made us children of God. And Lord, I pray that as we listen to your word, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear the truthfulness of it. And that we would seek to Listen closely and attentively to your word. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It's kind of surprised this week that there's only one miracle in all of the New Testament, in all the Gospels, that is recorded in all four Gospels, well, excluding the resurrection. The resurrection is in all four. But when it comes to Jesus' ministry and his life, isn't it kind of shocking that there's only one miracle that's in all four of them? And they all have a little bit of differences. Differences not in contradictions, but highlighting different aspects. The Gospel of John, which is really the reason why I say it's all four. The Synoptics have a lot of the same accounts of miracles. But the Gospel of John usually has his own that he's finding in the life of Jesus, or he incorporates the same miracles but in different places, and some of them will not have it. Some of the other synoptics will not have it. But in John's Gospel, he spends a lot of time focusing on the response of these crowds. And we don't get that here. It ends with them feeding 5,000 men, and immediately Jesus goes and walks on water. In the next scene. But John focuses on the response of the crowds who keep following him, who want more and more food to eat. And Jesus tells him that I'm the bread of life. And he goes down that path. Well, what makes Mark's account special? What's his focus and his emphasis that he's trying to make? Well, he's the only one who notes something curious that Jesus says in verse 34. When he he saw the great crowd, many of the different gospel accounts record that Jesus had compassion on them, but Mark records the reason why he had compassion on the crowds. It's because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Hence the title of the sermon this morning, The Good Shepherd Provides. Jesus here in this miracle shows in a way that has not been seen yet in the gospel of Mark exactly what that looks like, exactly what it looks like that the good shepherd has come. And as we've just seen in Ezekiel, shepherd imagery is throughout the entire Old Testament. Ezekiel was looking at the shepherds of Israel, the leaders, who were supposed to be instructing people in God's word, pointing them into the tr- to the truth, but instead the leaders were not doing that. Were using their positions of authority to benefit themselves, taking the tax and using it to spend on their their own wealth, to the abuse and to the lack of God's people. But before that, we know David. He was a shepherd since his youth. He raised. The sheep, he defended the herd, and he incorporated that and wrote beautiful psalms, like Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Another little detail that's only included in Mark, which is the green grass. And I don't have enough time to go through all the instances, whether it was uh, Moses with Midian, before that Joseph being a sh- a shepherd, and throughout Jacob, and all the different patriarchs. There's so much shepherd imagery that's incorporated in Scripture, and it creates this beautiful picture of God and his care and his concern. But here Jesus says that his response to seeing these sheep and having compassion on them, he says that they saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he begins to teach them many things. We already see that this imagery of a shepherd, exactly what does it look like, the fact that Jesus is the shepherd of his sheep? And that's kind of what we're going to be exploring today. And the first thing that I want to look at is that Jesus provides for his sheep, or the shepherd, the good shepherd, provides for his sheep because he cares. Look at verse 30. And by the way, uh at the end of your bulletin in the very back, there's an outline that you can follow. I'm gonna to try to fill in all the blanks. I've minimized the amount of blanks in it so that hopefully you can I'll actually say them all. And starting in verse 30, you see that it, the focus is on the apostles. And the apostles have returned for from their journey, and they have done all that Jesus has taught has told them to do. They taught what Jesus told them to taught. And what Jesus saw was first, he gave them a command to come away by yourselves, that is the apostles, to a desolate place. And I think this word here, a desolate place, is kind of an unfortunate translation. It's the word for wilderness. And we get his point here that he wants them to go by themselves away. It's really an uninhabited wilderness. We know it's not a desolate place, at least in our minds, because there's green grass that they all sit on. So Jesus instructs them to go to really an uninhabited wilderness to get away for a very specific purpose, to rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. See, the very beginning of this, the whole scene, is Jesus' care for his disciples. And I think this is something that uh, Graham in our book study, we've been reading a lot about, that Jesus in his care for people, our neediness as human beings is not just solely based on the fact that we're sinners. It's also based on the fact that we are creatures, that it's okay to rest From work, Jesus actually wanted his disciples to pull away, to stop focusing on their ministry for just a little bit, to have a break, to be able to get something to eat. And probably, much to the disciples' dismay, that right when Jesus focuses, they go to the isolated place, they receive an interruption. In verse 34, when they finally get to the shore, the crowd had beat them to the punch. And if you're wondering exactly how do we get to the fact that there's 5,000 men by the end of this passage, that little hint there that Mark has given us, the green grass, gives us a little clue. Israel kind of has a lot of the same topography of California. And if you're in the a really hot, arid region, you notice that the grass is not really green all the time. It's only green in very specific times of the year, such as the spring or maybe the winter in Israel. Well, we know in fact that it was the spring because even though John does not, in John chapter 6, does not tell us that the grass was green, he does tell us when it happens, Passover. That the Passover festival is happening in Jerusalem that people from all over the world, Jews who are scattered all around, are all coming into Jerusalem. And that Josephus tells us that in the first and second century, roughly five million people could be in Jerusalem at one time. So even though they're going to a desolate place or an isolated region, these people who are traveling see Jesus, recognize this band, and run after him by foot. But what Jesus notices about this crowd, all these Jews, faithful to come, worship God, keeping the Passover. His note about the crowd is that they're like sheep without a shepherd. This is a constant problem throughout the Old Testament. It's a worry. That specific wording is picked up from Numbers 27, verse 17 where Moses worries about the people and he says, I do not want them to be like sheep without a shepherd. And that's exactly what happens in Judges. Once Joshua dies, the people of Israel are like sheep without a shepherd. And what happens to the people? They drift off into sin almost constantly. So Jesus resolves to meet the crowd's needs by beginning to teach them many things, it's amazing, actually, that Jesus' response to this was to have compassion on them. If you were tired and you had been working all day and you have not even had the leisure of eating, probably pretty hungry and irritated. And if I went home after a long day and hadn't eaten anything, and I get someone knocking on my door, I hope to have the same response as Jesus has. But I'm a sinner, and I'm probably a lot less likely. It's really quite a surprising thing, and I think that probably, the based on the disciples' reaction, they were probably pretty irritated. And while the disciples had a need to eat, and while Jesus did recognize that we have earthly needs creaturely needs there's a priority here there's a priority to needs and i have included just the whole statement there that those who serve i wonder if i included it here because i did not memorize it the servant's priority is to serve not to be served that the apostles were learning, in part, a lesson that they were going to be needing for the rest of their lives. That they were appointed servants of the Most High God, and their first, number one priority was not themselves, but the needs of others. And they had that put on display by Jesus all the time. Whether it's here or in the foot-washing ceremony, the master becomes a servant. And that's really all of Jesus' ministry. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus, that he although he was equal with God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but hum, hum, humbled himself to be like a servant. That's what Jesus does. And the biggest need of these people is that they would be taught. I think that this kind of, flips a lot of our missionary type thinking. Sometimes we think, well, before you can teach anyone or share the gospel with anyone, tell them the good news of who Jesus is, you first have to show them you care by doing X, Y, or Z, by showing some level of care, providing for needs, and those are all really good things, by the way. Missionaries should show they care. They should show that they love and show compassion, building wells, maybe sending dentists in, doctors in, caring for the needs of the people, not letting anyone go away and saying, oh, I'll just pray for that need. But realize that there is a priority here. That when we teach people the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, that's the best possible thing you can do for anyone who's lost. Because their greatest need is not their bellies or their health. The greatest need of every human being is to be reconciled to the living God, to have God's wrath removed and to be unified with him and be one in Christ. That's everyone's greatest need. Jesus cares for these people. It hits him in the gut, and that's that word there, compassion. We talk about compassion in the sense of Maybe we feel in our hearts that we love someone, or we feel deep down in our bones compassion. But here, Jesus is moved, it's in his bowels. He has a gut feeling about this. He has from his gut, his feelings deep inside his being, he cares for these people. And that's the very motivation he has, whether he's caring for his disciples or caring for the crowd. And he doesn't just care for the disciples physical needs just as he doesn't care just for merely the crowd's physical needs. He also cares that his crowd sees their inability. That second point there, he cares that we see our inability. Notice that Jesus, when he starts speaking to them, when that this whole occasion is brought up by the disciples They're probably hungry and tired at the end of the day. They've been out teaching. They've been out performing miracles, casting out demons. And now Jesus has spent yet another day that was supposed to be dedicated to their needs, being dedicated to the needs of these people. They essentially start an argument with him. They say, well, Jesus, the time is late. It's late in the day. Don't you realize that we're in an isolated place? We're in an uninhabited region. Why don't you send them away, verse 36, send them away to the surrounding countryside and villages so that they can buy themselves something to eat. Jesus, don't you care that these people are hungry probably? And I mean, didn't you say we were coming out here to feed us too and to rest a little while? And Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. It's kind of a shocking thing to ask them. You know, they had, to be fair, they had already been given Jesus' message and Jesus' power. So really here, the lack in the disciples' understanding was really in what Jesus was able to do. But Jesus, we know the reason why Jesus asked this question, because we have so many different complementary witnesses, which is so wonderful. We have John chapter 6 that tells us he asked this of a particular disciple, Philip, to test him. He asked it to test him, knowing what he already would do. Jesus is asking a question, but it's not really a real question here. He's testing them. And what we see in this whole argument and their response is, they discover that they have no possible way of doing what Jesus is, about, is asking them to do. Verse 37, they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? We know from Matthew chapter... This is what happens when you don't go off the notes as well. Matthew chapter 20, verse 2, from one of his parables, that Jesus said that a denarii, a silver coin that had the inscription of Caesar carved onto it, that that was a typical day's wage. You work a whole day, you get a silver coin that has Caesar's inscription on it. Well, we got here at least three days, 90 days worth, 200 days worth of work. Then IV translates it, for a reason, eight months of wages. Think about how it's the most expensive aspect of a wedding. It's the food. Some of our families in this congregation know that a little bit better than others, exactly how expensive weddings can be due to this. But imagine if you had 5,000 men at your wedding and how much they can eat. And on top of that, Matthew chapter 14 says that that number, 5,000 men, Mark says specifically men here. Matthew in Matthew chapter 14 says, That's besides the women and the children. How large is this crowd that Jesus is feeding? It's a lot more than 5,000. It could be anywhere from 10,000 if they just had wives. It could be 15,000 if they had just one child. We're thinking here anywhere between, let's just say conservative estimate, 10,000 to 25,000 people that Jesus is feeding. That's a... Pretty big wedding, wouldn't you say, to feed. And they said, well, Jesus' response to them of, well, we couldn't possibly pay for this. Even nine months' wages probably wouldn't do the trick. He said to them, how many do you have? Go and see. And they went and found out exactly how much they had. And John tells us that it was a little boy from the crowd with probably the only good mother in the crowd that packed his lunch. Five loaves of bread and two fish. And why I say it's the little boy's lunch is because here a loaf of bread, we might be thinking uh wonder bread loaf, sliced bread. No. A loaf of bread could have been anywhere the size of a biscuit. He brings up his lunch. Who knows? Maybe he was making sandwiches with it, putting a little fish in there, at least two of two sandwiches and then a couple biscuits. Jesus takes this little boy's lunch, and he makes enough to feed 5,000 men, maybe 25,000 people. What's Jesus doing here? He's drawing out for them that they don't have the possible way, any possible way of doing this. I've told you that he's fed 5,000 people, but Mark reserves that for the very end because that's the punchline of all of this. No, he starts off with saying, you can't, you don't have the money to do it. Go and look to see what you have. All you have is this little boy's lunch. That'll do. All I need. You know, if they had read God's word, they would see that while feeding miracles are few and far between, it's not completely unprecedented. 2 Kings tells us Elisha, he was able to, and he did, feed 100 men with 20 loaves of bread, and it was a feeding miracle. Well, Jesus is working with about a fifth of the resources to feed roughly five times, no, like 20 times, the amount of people. Jesus is taking all these different things about this text, all the quotes Mark does here, he's drawing connections back to the Old Testament constantly to make the connection for people that Jesus, the good shepherd, is not this guy who's just jumped onto the scene, but he's identifying himself with Yahweh, the God of Israel, the good shepherd who provides all the needs of his sheep. And he shows them that they're not possibly able to care for themselves. And then we get to The last point here, that Jesus, while he cares for their inability, he does not leave them there, but he shows that he is able, as the good shepherd, to satisfy every need. He's able to satisfy every need. And Jesus does this, really, in a couple, about three different ways. Those last four verses... He divided those two fish, he divided them all, and they all ate, and they all were satisfied. Then we have 12 baskets of leftovers full of food, of both the pieces of bread and the fish. And then the real kicker here, that Jesus fed and fully satisfied off this meager meal, 5,000, we've already said up to 25,000 people. You see what he's been doing, what Mark is doing this whole time. He's he's building up to this event. He's trying to show you the outcome. John was focused on the crowds and their response to him. Mark is focused on the result, Jesus's power, Jesus's strength, his ability to provide for all of his people's needs. And these people here, They don't just get one meal. Every single person here leaves satisfied. The opposite there is hungry. There's no more room in their stomachs. Everyone ate and was filled. How did he do it? How did Jesus do it? Well, we're not told exactly how, but... We're told something that actually is pretty common to me and you. He looks up to heaven and he blesses his food and breaks it. I've heard before, maybe this is just a side note, that uh, Christians praying for their food, there, there's no Bible verse for that. There's no reason why we do that. This is just a tradition. And, but, you know, we are thankful for God, to God, so we'll keep doing it. The reason why we pray, even if we're not thinking about this tradition that we have of praying for our food, The Jews did it. Early Christians did it. And Jesus here in our text did it. Not for any, just no reason. He did it because he looks up to heaven. He's pointing people. He doesn't say how he does it, but he does it by his gestures. Showing exactly where the food is coming from. It's coming from his heavenly father. The crowd in John chapter 6 doesn't miss this. When they come up to Jesus again, they come up to him saying, Jesus, we're hungry again. It's the next day. Could you feed us? You know, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and God fed him through Moses. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. His focus here is not on showing the people that he's meanly or merely, that's better than meanly, Merely trying to say that he can take care of all their physical needs, he's pointing to himself as the object of their faith and their trust to people who just don't get it. He's able to satisfy every one of their needs, but they just don't get it. You know, this miracle, this all the gospel writers see how special this miracle is. Mark does it because he references this miracle, at least on two other occasions. After Jesus walks on the water and they're afraid, and then they have the same repeat situation where they're afraid of Jesus, Mark says it's because they did not understand this event. Mark 6, 52. They did not understand the miracle of the loaves. And when he does it again in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10, for the Gentile audience as opposed to a Jewish audience. He has the same conversation because the disciples find themselves saying, what are we going to do about food? We don't really have much money left and we don't have any bread. We forgot to buy some when we were out and not on the boat. And Jesus talks to him and says, do you not remember when I fed 5,000 men or when I just fed 4,000 men? Are you really worried about food? Jesus is demonstrating for us completely that he's able to satisfy every single need of those who come to him. Isn't that the picture we get from Psalm 23 about who God is? That the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, food for sheep. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in what? Paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And he proceeds then to say that he set up a table in the midst of his enemies, a banquet. You know, we just read about a banquet last week. Herod had a banquet, didn't he? He had a banquet for all the leading men to have a lewd party. And Jesus provides a different kind of banquet. A banquet for people who seek after Him. And Jesus, out of His kindness, has laid out this banquet for people who just don't get it. His disciples do not get it. We can over spiritualize this text, my friends. We can think about this and. I think it's an important question to ask of, does Jesus provide for our physical needs today? Does he provide for the physical needs of his people? Is the only application of this text that Jesus provides us spiritual food? Or, and not not the physical stuff, obviously, you know. Or that Jesus will provide food, but it's holy in the future. This is an eschatological hope that we have that one day, On the new heavens and the earth, he will feed and provide for all of our needs. I think that's taking it too far. And there's a reason. Think about that shepherd imagery. God is the provider and sustainer of his people. And just as Jesus cared about his disciples' physical needs and these people's physical needs, it's not all he cares about, but he does care about their needs. He recognizes us as human beings who are frail and who are dependent upon the living God for not just direction in life, but also for our sustenance, for our employment. Unless we go too far and think that this is a pattern that we should be expecting some banquets laid out in front of us when we pray, even though there are some banquets in the Old Testament that God provides, it's very infrequent. I told you, Elisha multiplies bread and multiplies oil, Elijah, or sorry, Elijah, Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 4, he provides bread for a hundred soldiers. And we also have the manna in the wilderness that God provides for his people for 40 years. But even in Exodus chapter 16, when he provides for his people, he sets a limit on this. They question there, actually, in Exodus 16, whether or not God's able to do this. Can he really provide meat for us? Where is he going to get it? They question the manna. But there's a time limit on that. Once they get into the land, the manna ceases. But that doesn't mean that God no longer cares about the physical needs of his people. It's as if Jesus is teaching his people something he taught them in the sermon on the mount. Jesus said to them that not to be ancients for your basic needs or clothing, this is Matthew chapter 6, but rather seek after the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God will give them the, these things as well. We are taught as Christians throughout Scripture to lift up all our needs before God, asking that he would meet our needs that he would give us bread, that he would provide for our basic needs. God says in Matthew chapter 6, in that illustration, he says, Well, he feeds the birds of the air. Will he not feed you? They don't sow, they don't toil, and yet they have plenty to eat. Hasn't that been true in our lives? You look back through your life and you've seen God's manifold provision. Now we could take this too far. You see, the disciples were also hungry. Jesus did not feed them immediately. He let them get really hungry. They had no time to eat on their mission, and now they had no time to eat for the rest of this day. Paul talks about this. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, I know how to be brought low and how to abound in every and any circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me see when we do have real needs if we suffer from hunger or even if god and his providence leads us into starvation what we are shown is the same thing the disciples are shown we're shown that we are needy creatures who are dependent upon him in that we are to seek after the kingdom of God, that we're to seek after righteousness and to let our lives be in his hands. That whatever need that we go through, that God has a purpose in it. And that if there is a future aspect, yes, we, there's going to be a day when we never hunger, never thirst. There's going to be a day in the future where we'll never go hungry again. No more disease, no more death. But now is not that day. Now's the day that we are, just like the disciples, to be disciplined and discipled into trusting the Lord with all our needs, with whatever pain and suffering he sends our way, with whatever lack that we have, knowing that God will teach us, just like he taught Paul, to how to abound in having much or in having little. little knowing that in whatever weakness that we have, whether it's due to human frailty or due to our sin, we are taught that our weakness is when God's glory shines the brightest. That in our weakness and in our frailty, that's when God's power is made manifest. They witnessed the glory of the Lord King Jesus when they were needy and hungry. And we likewise often in our lives witness the same thing, that when we are weak, it's in those moments when Jesus Christ, God shows himself strong to those who trust in him, no matter what trial he sends our way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent the good shepherd And that the good shepherd has shown himself worthy of our faith and our trust. That time and time again he provides for the needs of his people. To trust in God's provision. And Lord, will we not take this as a call to idleness or irresponsibility. But will we take this as a call to recognize that if we belong to Christ. If Jesus is our Lord. In our Savior, then we have a Father in heaven who's our good shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd who sits right now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven and knows every one of our needs and is well able to supply all of them. Lord, may we just entrust our lives into your hand. Lord, we confess that only Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies our greatest need. Lord, we might go hungry in this life. We might develop sickness. Lord, we know that before Jesus is coming, that we will all die and have to face God on judgment day. But we thank you that the bread of life has nourished our souls and has dealt with our greatest problem, our greatest need. And he fully satisfied it. He fully satisfied God's wrath, do to us for our sin, we thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, as needy people, we need not just your forgiveness, but we also need your grace day by day that we might be faithful to you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would continually supply us with that strength. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You will stand with me. We're going to sing to the Lord in response. To-